The Third Man Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Podcast the Jack White, the Third Man Records History Program, and I'm your co-host Paul Kaminsky. I'm your other co-host James Kaminsky. James is talking very low right now because there is dinosaur lurking outside of his room, and if he goes above a certain pitch, he will be eviscerated by razor sharp fangs. Yeah, no, it's um, it's like a a different form of T Rex where they can hear you. They're just wait, isn't that that's that movie with the with Jim from the office. That's the quiet place, isn't it? Hold on, dear listener. James is in the process of writing and originating the movie A Quiet Place. <laughs> <laughs> what I love the most about A Quiet Place too is that Alright, so there's a colony of people that live simply on an island and have evaded the monsters because they live on an island. And it's sort of nondescript what the island is. It's sort of, we, we're to believe it's a fairly small island, but it does beg the question, like, did the quiet place, is Australia not a quiet place? Like Australia's quite did, loud. Right. But what I'm saying is, like, if the monsters only landed in North America, I mean, Australia is is kind of island-esque. I mean, are their whole society simply untouched by a quiet place? I think Paul is in the midst of writing the movie 28 Weeks Later, in which they find out that North, like, North America was untouched by the zombie apocalypse. 
Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> um, welcome back to the Third Man Podcast. So we're we're in, we're in a brand new season. We're in season six here. We're making a lot of changes, and mostly for the worst. We're we're just trying to make it as bad of an as of a show as we as we can. And somehow we've already got a packed season dais ready for you all. We're very excited about some of the cool episodes coming up. But today, James is going to be one of my favorites i think of the of the season today we are going to be talking about white blood cells 20th anniversary box and we're going to be doing so with a very special guest mr stuart sykes will be joining us yes and stuart engineered white blood cells and for all of the listeners out there who are also vault subscribers in your white blood cells 20th anniversary vault you'll find a wonderful dvd which chronicles the making of white blood cells and in it of course is tons of really cool footage from the studio as the white stripes recorded their breakthrough third album and mr stewart sykes is all over that dvd he's he's plugging things in He's adjusting knobs. He's uh, he's moving some things around. There's some really great moments in the DVD, which, you know, I don't want to spoil for everyone who hasn't seen it yet, but they are really, really fun moments where they're working out the songs and, you know, Stuart is helping to facilitate some of the different studio sounds that the band is going for, and it's really awesome. So anyway, we have Stuart on the show today to give us a little background on his involvement in that album and his work at Easley McCain Studios, where that album was recorded. And we're just very, very excited to have Stuart on the show today. Yeah, he was a really fun interview and really enjoyed talking with Stuart. A lot of cool information that we had previously not had heard. So it was really cool to hear that and and to hear about the atmosphere of Easley McCain and the goings-on, if you will. And also to hear a little bit about Van Leer Rose, we got to talk a little bit about that as well, because he was also the master mixologist Hmm. Hmm. of that one. I think Mixer, Mixman, Mixmaster, Mixmaster Sykes. I think it's Mixman. (laughs) Um, And yeah, so uh, really great interview. Really great interview. But before we get to that, James, we're just going to take a quick look here at the white blood cells 20th anniversary vault package and we're just going to kind of go over what was in that vault we've never really done this before when we first started this podcast we had always intended to do vault package openings every three months and that never actually wound up happening although we have sprinkled vaultiness throughout the podcast periodically of course the third man records vault is the subscription service that I'm sure anyone listening to this show knows what that is, but it is a uh, it's a subscription service that you get, and it's uh, quarterly, and they send some pretty cool stuff in them. And what they've been doing lately, Third Man, they've been doing 20th anniversary releases of all of the White Stripes albums, and we got the White Blood Cells 20th anniversary vault. Now, James, I had actually missed the White Stripes self-titled debut 20th anniversary vault because of a billing kerfuffle. Oh. And I tried to plead with them after the fact and say, hey, listen, there was a problem with my billing address. Can I get this vault? And they said, no dice. Mm. No dice. And then they sent you a Paul McCartney 
three album that yeah. had dice on it. <laughs> yeah. So I wish I had all three of them. Is looking like a gaping hole in my collection there that I all oh, you're you've got a gaping hole going on now, Paul. I not to worry you or anything. You have a prolapsed vinyl collection. <laughs> But anyway, I did get the Distill one, and these 20th anniversary collections are pretty cool. Now, when Ben Blackwell was last on the show, we asked him, well, I naively asked him why the albums weren't included, and he said, um, those have been released so many times, Why would, it seems like a waste of everyone's time to include the actual album. Which is very funny to me to then read the comments and like the collectors groups and stuff who are like, I can't believe they're releasing White Blood Cells again, and I'm just like, they're not, they're yeah but they're not though (laughs) right yeah there's like the vinyl me please editions and stuff of various ones of these albums that have come out but yeah they're not releasing the albums personally i don't know i would love i'm a sucker for a good like remaster i love when people go back in and tinker with stuff they shouldn't be tinkering with you know (laughs) real mad scientist shit (laughs) they just up the gain or something just just gain that up no but i'd love that stuff you know and especially like I like Jack's recent production a lot more just holistically than his older production. Some people don't feel that way. Some people have the opposite opinion. I happen to enjoy his more recent production, which is a bit cleaner and a bit kookier. And I would love to hear a clean, kooky white blood cells, but I understand also why you wouldn't necessarily want to touch it. You know, it is a classic at this point. The album White Blood Cells. I don't know how you feel about remixes, James. Are you in camp pro remix or camp anti remix? It depends on the album. If it's an album I'm very familiar with, I don't care enough to get a remix because really, to, yeah, I like a, a remixed B side or something, or like the goes what you doing. I liked because I wasn't able to kind of get that right um, before, or at least in a format that was cheap enough where I would be willing to buy it and. I shouldn't say cheap, but in a format that was more affordable. Right. So it really depends. Like, I'm not out there looking for remasters of things because 10 years from now, there's just going to be another one. And then 10 years from then, there's going to be another one. Because there's just, I mean, at a certain point, I don't hear the extra production. Right. I don't have the ear for it. And so it's not necessarily exactly my thing. I guess I'm like of the exact opposite opinion, whereas if it's an album I'm very familiar with, I would love to hear a different take on the mix. Sure. I think I'm more interested in hearing different material. Well, so like if yeah. it's if it's a diff if it's take two rather than take one in that regard. Well uh, yeah. I'll take I'll do I'll prefer that. That's why I really like the vault releases of these things is we're getting to hear stuff we haven't heard before. Sure. And um, I don't need a higher production or a different production on it really because it, it's still the same song and it's still the same vocals and the same everything and, and unless the audio was super garbled before that I don't necessarily need it. It's kind of like um, you can remaster stuff on TV to go from 720 to 1080 but if you're still watching it on a small screen or something, you know, it doesn't matter. Right. Or if you don't care that much about like a couple things being a little pixelated, then it's not it's not going to ruin the experience for me. Well, I guess I feel I agree with you when it comes to remastering, but I I'm a sucker for a good remix, like somebody mm. going back in there and actually remixing the thing. There's an element of newness that 
particularly on albums I've heard a zillion times or ones like White Stripes albums that are maybe a little recorded to emulate the live act a bit. Those would be the kinds of albums that I would like to hear remixed. I agree with you 100% with what you're saying in terms of remastering. Remastering, I can very rarely hear the difference. You know, you can remaster something a zillion times and right, it all kind of sounds the same to me. I like what Giles Martin has been doing with the Beatles remixes, particularly the White Album remix, because you're hearing things you haven't heard before, you know, particularly a track like Long, Long, Long or something. So when we talked to Ben, I think he had mentioned that Distill would be the only one that could kind of warrant a remix, but they, I I forget the answer he gave us, but I think it was because they physically didn't have the tape to do it. It was recorded on equipment as such where... You couldn't actually go in there and really remix it too much. Mm-hmm. With the yeah, it would be remixing based off of the CD that they already right. Had. Yeah, that was the best quality. I think he said right. They had a CD or something. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it, regardless, so we don't actually get a remix or anything like that on here. But it is a beautiful package, and I really like these booklet style album packages for these twentieth yeah. anniversaries. They're sort of they open like a nice hardcover photo book and on the inside of this particular one you get some cool images here one is a black and white photo from the same set of photos that was the back of the original um yeah taken by pat pantano so it's got the uh that that river yes by and yeah yeah and then i think we had talked with pat pantano about that and when I was when I had first gotten the album when I was a teenager, I didn't understand what was happening on the back cover. I didn't either. I didn't <laughs> even know it was water, but I didn't look very hard because we had the CD, so it was small, right? It was so tiny, <laughs> right? And then on the opposite side, you get this wonderful outtake cover image of Jack and Meg, you know, looking at the various black blood cells <laughs> or the bacteria. Are, the bacteria. It's the bacteria right. coming at them, right? Uh, it. It's interesting to see them in full daylight without post production added onto it because you could see the outfits and everything, and it's yeah, you could see finger holes where their fingers are. It's kind of it's neat, um, right? Meg looks really funny in that one. Jack kind of yes. just looks dour, but Meg's got this little impish grin on her face, which is really really funny and cute. Is he wearing a ring, or is that just a scuff on my? No, that's a ring, of some kind. Yeah, he's wearing some kind of ring there. Jack is wearing that necklace that he was wearing a lot during that period. Yeah, that had that car tag. Yeah, that we learned from the first volume. So yeah, we talked about white blood cells in our second episode of the podcast. And, you know, just confusing everyone because we went from self-titled debut to white blood cells in episodes Mm -hmm. one and two and just never addressed Distill until like two years later or something. But yeah, White Blood Cells was the third album by the White Stripes, which you all know that was their big breakthrough album. And it was yeah recorded at Easley McCain Studios. And Jack and Meg are the only two players on there. And the only third name really on the entire thing is Stuart Sykes, who we're about to talk to today, which is really cool. And then, as we mentioned, Pat Pantano, member of the Dirt Bombs, Rocket 455, etc., took the photos for the uh, package. And we talked to Pat as well at, on the show. I was watching with one eye on the other side. I had 15 people telling me to move. I got moving on my mind. I found shelter 
yeah, so we're just gonna talk about the book here a little bit. Now, the book is really cool because it gives you, you know, some more outtakes. And in fact, what I love about the interior photo is that you can see a couple of the people's masks lifted up of the bacteria. Yeah. And so you can actually see Marcy Boland very clearly there taking a photo with what looks like an Instamatic or some kind of Nikon, which is really cool because we had known that Marcy was one of these bacteria for a long time, but it's really fun and cool to kind of see the mask lifted up to see her very clearly underneath there. You can't really make out anyone else too well, but you can make out her clear as day. Strange to see the jeans tag on that guy's jeans too on the the one on the far left with the, the leather jacket <laughs> yeah, um, yeah it kind of breaks the mystique a little bit yeah yeah it's it's odd and the cover am i mistaken or is that uh is the background reddened in post like was that a uh a thing that was kind of colorized it might be on the cover because it looks almost like they added extra red to it or is that just an artifact from blowing the photo up to a larger size that's possible yeah, I don't know. On the, you can see it on the symbol, like there's some red bleed on there, or is that reflection? And then, like, Jack's oh, yeah. nose and lips are, are a little strange. It might just be, like... No, you're right. Th- I think this is manipulated in some way, because th- there's some of these carved areas that look a little too clean. Yeah, and the tambourine looks like it was... Yeah, and Meg's hair looks like there. it was carved around. You can see some of that. So, I th- and her knuckles are red. I think this was just, like, painted, the... Yeah. The negative was painted or something along those lines. Yeah, possibly. I mean, this is a cover shoot you see a lot of places. There was a bootleg collection we got really early on, early 2000s, called, what was it? Just B-Sides and Rarities, I think. Mm. There was also, oh, no, the Legendary Lost Tapes. Mm, yes. You remember that one? So that had a, an image from this shoot, whatever this shoot was here, um, with Jack and Megan. They have the prayer candle on the tambourine and stuff which is which is neat you know what's also strange is if you flip around to the back cover look at those look at those heels that jack's got on yeah he doesn't need to be any taller and yeah he's already a tall man are those doc martens he's wearing there i don't know and i'm not punk enough to know yeah but you get some cool shots here You, you get some cool shots here's jack in um in this van now if i'm not mistaken in the DVD, this is the van that they're driving around in in the DVD. It's it's possible that's a different van, but that's pretty cool. In the DVD, you get to see them travel to Memphis and sort of drive around. They pass Graceland and a couple other things, and you get to basically just hear what was on the radio in 2001 <laughs> as Jack and Meg are in a van driving around visiting Tennessee, you know, and having fun. And uh, visiting the Flaming Lips so they could write a song. That's right. There's a magazine on the couch on one of those pages is that the the magazine that uh, i mean spoilers Stuart sykes mentions that uh, they were reading a rolling stone about how the white stripes were a band to be watching maybe there's a magazine that jack is flipping through in the dvd which is just like whatever it is like allures you know just one of those standard oh, like that. dentist office like magazine things and it's just interesting to see Stuart sort of toiling away at the control board and Jack is just kind of sipping a Coca-Cola and flipping through <laughs> a magazine and stuff. But when you see, you, you check out in there, there's an image here of the console and you can see they've got CD copies of the White Stripes debut album and Distill on the console. 
which is cool, which means they were referring back to those, at least in some capacity. And then you can see Jack and Stuart in the bottom left here as well. Yeah, it's pretty neat. And I guess there's a bunch of magazines on that couch there, so it really could have been a number of things. But yeah, Easley McCain seems like a, a very cozy, cozy studio. I mean, obviously, this is a podcast, so we're not going to go through too much of the the photos in here because you, you'd have to sort of see it for yourself. But I guess, but there is a fun poster on the wall at Easley McCain that says, "Have you seen my balls?" There's a, <laughs> a reward number. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, there's, they give you lots of concert stubs and posters. And what I love about these early. I don't know if even know if you call it early. It's almost like mid-period or like just pre-fame White Stripes posters is they all look quite DIY and it's before you get the real hard red, white, black conceit for the concert posters because some of these concert posters have yellow and blue and it reads as wrong, <laughs> you know, when you see yeah. them. It reads like, those colors shouldn't be on that. Like that seems very wrong to me. And it's just because the convention wasn't quite so baked, I guess at this point, which seems odd to me because I feel like Jack would have baked it. What I really love though, is the different white stripes posters that feature completely different artists. Like there's a white stripes poster here that has Donnie and Marie on it. There's one that has, it's just, it's just Loretta Lynn, an image of Loretta Lynn. And it says the white stripes. There's one that's just an image of Dolly Parton. And it says the white stripes, really funny funny cool stuff i also very much like the one of jack and meg with their eyes are just enlarged yeah (laughs) that one's really creepy so as far as the um the actual audio goes there's some really great audio in here what i prefer hearing in these vaults is the demos and outtakes like that's my preference point for these things when it comes to live material i feel bad to say this but there's such an embarrassment of riches when it comes to white stripes live audio that at a certain point it all starts to sound the same to me a little and i much rather hear studio outtakes and stuff we haven't heard before i don't know how you feel about that james the, the different I, live stuff um it depends because there's some concerts where there are specifically amazing takes of a song that i will probably rather get those like i don't know a, a whole concert sure like I, I get it you can't experience the concert like you would have if you were there unfortunately it's cool but then occasionally you know they'll mix it up i mean jack always mixed up every song but it would be it's nice to hear the covers i really enjoy hearing the covers in live sets yeah grinning in your face don't you mind people grinning in your face your mother will talk about you your sister and your brother is true no matter how you try to live i'm gonna talk about you still don't you mind people grinning in your face 
hearing the jack and meg banter and jack inserting his name and meg's name into places <laughs> yeah you know there's aspects to concert audio that really appeal to me yeah but i i do agree you know i don't need to hear fell in love with a girl however if there's a tour version of fell in love with a girl right then i'm into it like kind of how hotel yorba during the 2014 tour there was the kind of country version of hotel yorba yeah. And I really, I'm glad that that was put to vinyl or something, you know, because we have that from the last vault. Actually, we have a couple versions of it, but it's nice to hear the different kind of tour takes on stuff sometimes. And the irony is, if we didn't have all of this footage and recordings of the live sets, we'd be begging for it. I know. But because we have it all, at a certain point, I'm like, all right. <laughs> yes it's being it's it's being jaded yeah for sure but Uh, yeah where would we be without jack white talking about having nothing better to do right and where would we be without him saying ted motherfucking nugent and you know like there's stuff that we get from these live takes that are really 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 cool yeah but some of the highlights i want to talk about from the demos outtakes and alternate mixes disc uh, that's where it's at is really cool. And you get to see in the DVD them doing the vocal takes of that's where it's at. What's funny is like Meg is, I think we talked about this in the Stuart Sykes interview, Meg's in, a, in her sleeping bag, sleeping on the floor while Jack, and like desperately like covering her head while Jack is doing his vocal takes of that's where it's at and stuff. But I'm like, what song is that? I love that there are still songs from the stripes we could be like what's that song like i know ben was disappointed in everybody for not digging that that the still previously unheard live cover of which one was it you're right i'm wrong yeah i think that song is cool that's the stuff i like to hear so anyway that's where it's at kind of falls in that you're right i'm wrong territory but i also really love the ooh ah track that we get on the um, b-side of that first disc and um, there's also a track called feel like i'm three feet tall which is cool And then there's some tracks that are on the DVD that we don't get in audio form, which I found to be slightly puzzling. And I think I mentioned it in the Stewart interview, but we get to hear 
we're going to be friends with drums, which is yes. really, really weird because <laughs> it's basically Meg kind of keeping time. Fall is here. Hear the yell. Back to school. But it's not tapping the foot. It's like, and the song just does not work as a rock tune in that way. Mm. And I don't know at what point they decided to ditch the drums, but I'm. it was an early stroke of production magic on Jack's part to understand that while they are a rock band, that a couple of these songs need to have that sugar never tasted so good quality, that downplayed just guitar kind of quality to it. The kind of outtakes and stuff you get on these and demos you get on, on these box sets are just like mind-bending it's so cool to hear just the the studio banter and the what's going on behind the scenes and to get stuff you really previously never heard with the white stripes in general because it was always you know they're all about the mystery and now they're kind of showing how the sausage is made in a way right you never got that before you never got an image of them mixing an album really i mean you maybe got one like press photo of them at toe rag or something or yeah along those lines but you never got audio recording you never heard Stuart sykes talking to jack or meg and or meg on the floor in a sleeping bag like right it's it's really 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 cool to see because they were vulnerable at this point in their life too yes everybody after white blood cells and an elephant to a much greater extent you know they were kind of untouchable rock gods and at this point in their life they were still very much young you know you look at the photo on the booklet here and they're babies you know they're, they're younger than both of us are now and younger than we were when we started this podcast and it's crazy you know a lot of vulnerability that you can see that's a great word for it particularly in meg when you look at the dvd footage and things i mean they were at such a weird point in their lives too you get the sense that it was all too much for meg a little at a certain point because yeah, she does have those, it seems, sensory issues where she's, you know, physically trying to cover her body, <laughs> you know, cover yeah. her head. And then in the Stuart Sykes interview you're about to hear, he talks a little bit about her impressions of going into the studio as well. But yeah, it's such a puzzling band. And we're in the middle of another kind of Jack Drought-ish thing. It's not quite to the levels it was at prior to Boarding House Reach, but as of the recording of this podcast, you know, summer 2021, it's been a minute since we've had a new Jack tune. And so it's nice to be able to revel in some of this classic stuff for a bit in the vacuum of not having new material and particularly to engage with the white stripes in a way that, like you were saying, James, is sort of unprecedented. That kind of access to their studio recording is unprecedented. I think the closest we've gotten to this point is... Ben Blackwell's documentation of Icky Thump. When the Icky Thump Xbox came out, we got a lot of photos and we got a lot of written documentation, but we didn't have the video to go along with it. Yes, yeah, so we had the audio, you know, demo right. stuff. And that was kind of the beginning of, I mean, that was, you know, the 20th anniversary. So, yeah, it was that was the 10th. 10th anniversary, sorry, yeah. thank you. The X set. I wonder if they'll do a double X. But <laughs> yeah, it was the start of it. I mean, Ben told us he would love to make a White Stripes documentary a long time ago. And then they kind of did with their podcast Striped. And, you know, it's it's starting to... I think they're trying to get people excited about the band. I mean, I think that's that's what it comes down to. But Yeah. 
a way to generate some new excitement in a band that hasn't, you know, yeah, it's been dormant. Unfortunately, released music in a long time. Yeah, it's been dormant for quite a while. So, anyway, we're going to jump to the Stuart Sykes interview here. We hope you're all Vault subscribers. If you're not, I mean, we get nothing for saying this, uh, but if you're listening to this show, you are a certain level, I assume, of Jack White fan. And if you are that level of Jack White fan and you are not a Vault subscriber, just do yourself a favor and just get it. Cause like I didn't get it for a long time and I regret that because there's some older vaults that I kind of really wish I had. <laughs> and there's Even some the flies get it. Well, the flies get it. Well, it's like, I would have loved that Van Lee Rose box, like all that stuff. I should have just gotten it. I should have just gotten that stuff. And I didn't. So if you're not getting it, you should get it. The next one coming the Paul out. Paul gets it. The James gets it. The next one coming out is going to be a Dylan one, right, James? They're doing yes. the Dylan thing, so it should be fun. But anyway, we're going to throw it to the Stuart Sykes interview. We want to thank Stuart again for joining us, and uh, yeah, let's let's throw it to it, James. Sounds great. We would like to welcome to the Third Bend Podcast, Stuart Sykes. We're so excited. For you to join us here on the program today, Stuart, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, it's great to have you. And we've certainly seen your name a bunch in our research for various albums, most notably White Blood Cells and, and Van Leer Rose and stuff. So it's great to talk to you. And we're super excited to hear some stories. I hope I can deliver. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you today is because we're really, really excited about the White Blood Cells Double X, I guess you call it, or 20th anniversary vault package that just came out. And the reason you're involved in that, of course, for everybody who got the vault, is you engineered the album White Blood Cells with Jack White. And you were with the band through the recording of that album, which is so exciting. And there's a wonderful DVD that comes with the vault package where you can see you and Jack and Meg and Dave Swanson sort of hanging in the studio and putting things together. And it was just so exciting for us to see footage like that because we've never really seen anything to that degree before of the recording process of a White Stripes album. And then, of course, you were also involved in the Van Leer Rose effort, which was the Loretta Lynn album that Jack produced and led to the creation of the Tours. So you've had a lot of involvement in the third man world at some pretty pivotal moments, sir. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I guess there's some luck involved in that, but I don't know. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your journey. So when you were coming up you know was music something that you had in mind as something you wanted to do as a career like what was your musical training if anything different types of music you were exposed to as a kid what was your kind of what was the primordial soup of Stuart Sykes uh well you know as a kid I didn't play anything until later my, yeah. my mom was actually not too psyched about uh, listening to a kid practice an instrument. So. <laughs> Why? Why not? <laughs> yeah, uh, tell me. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, I was like, I was in choir, you know, that kind of goofy stuff. But mostly my sister sort of got me into punk and new wave when I was a kid. I sort of never stopped liking it. What were your bands of choice there? I remember, you know, one of the first punk records i remember my sister bringing home was a dead kennedy's record and 
as a kid, I was like fascinated and scared by the album cover. <laughs> and I listened to it. I loved it. It sort of just kind of went from there. Then I got into Devo and Talking Heads and, you know, it sort of grew from there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of the, the evolution of one branch of punk is, is the new wave stuff. And Paul and I are big uh, David Byrne fans and, and Talking Heads fans as well. Did you have a, a favorite Talking Heads album? Well, probably Fear of Music. That's a good one. Yeah, I was a I was a little creatures man myself. Gotcha, gotcha. That's a good one. You know, I just recently rewatched uh, True Stories. I hadn't seen it in a, forever. Hmm. Still pretty good. Holds up. Nice. So are we talking high school bands? What were you playing when you picked up an instrument? Well, I didn't start playing until after high school, and then okay. I played drums and guitar a little bit. Yeah, I had read that you went to recording school in Orlando, Florida. Correct. I did. <laughs> and in an interview, I saw that you, you had stated that uh, they gave you the basic tools to avoid looking like an idiot in the studio. <laughs> and whether you could take that and do anything with it is another thing, which is a great well, quote a, about art. That's a nugget of a quote. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's, it I have is, a true ability to say stupid stuff. So no, that <laughs> is hit the edit button, my friend. <laughs> that, like, me and Paul both went to art school. That is what we have been yelling at folks on this podcast for about quite often, which is like, look, art school's not going to teach you how to do anything, really. They're going to teach you how to use the tools you already have. Like, they're not going to make you a better artist, necessarily. I mean, they'll give you the, the basics or whatever. But, you know, it's, it's how you take those kinds of professional kind of advice and, and how you use it and how you work the system a little bit. But taking that quote, can you give us any quick lightning pointers about how to not look like idiots, at least in the studio, at least? Because me and Paul, I mean... That's for like an intern? Sure. Don't talk. <laughs> you know, when, when I was at Easley's, we didn't have very good luck with interns. I was an intern and I did this and it worked out. Like nobody's there for the intern. Like your job is to learn and to jump in and help people before they even know that you need it, they need help and just learn like, and then people will like you. They'll talk to you at a point, but if you just try and interject and be too eager. Yeah. I just sort of found like, as when I was an intern, like I just basically, I sat in the corner and like when someone needed something, I did it. And then people would start talking to you just because people are generally friendly people. So <laughs> you, yeah. And then you sort of can gain people's trust that way. Like if you try and, I mean, I've actually never had an intern. I think it maybe stemmed from that. Can James be your intern? <laughs> can I look? I've, oh, wait, I'm talking too much. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I could teach people stuff, I think. Yeah. But like, I have a hard time, like even assistants, like I've never really had an assistant. And it's like, it's really hard for me to say, hey, can you go? move that mic or something when it's like i could get off this chair and do it <laughs> like 
and it's going to take less time. And then I don't have to look like an ass. Like, hey, go do this for me. Hey, can you get me some coffee? He's like, no, get off your fat ass and go get yourself. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's, you know, delegation to delegation is, can be useful. You know, it's, I mean, it's about giving yourself extra arms, right? Is that, that's the general rule of thumb. Sure. Yeah. But I guess I, I don't know, maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, but I seem to like to do everything myself. <laughs> I get that too. I get that too. So what brought you to Easley McCain? We know you started there as an intern, obviously that's what you said, and you kind of rose through the ranks to become studio manager, but you know, what was the environment in the studio like? Was it supportive of a young artist budding talent such as yourself? Or was it more of like a trial by fire kind of situation? It sounds like basically you just waited for them to ask you stuff and eventually they became interested in you. Like, how did that work there? Well, first, my sister was in grad school at Memphis State at the time. So she sort of knew because at some point, Sonic Youth was recording there, and she was all, oh, you know, she knew I was in school, obviously. She's like, Sonic Youth's recording a record here in Memphis. I started researching the studio and saw that they had recorded a ton of records I liked, like, you know, John Spencer, and then the Sonic Youth, and 68 Comeback. They've done a bazillion awesome records. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things you have to do, and you, it's pretty funny to a, a resume. I was like, yeah, I had a resume, but like, it, <laughs> I mean, I, there was nothing on it, but I had one. <laughs> so, name? Yes, I have that. Yeah, <laughs> good. So I remember Doug, one of the owners. Like, I remember calling him, and one of the first questions he asked me was, "Do you like music?" Which completely. <laughs> freaked me out it was like what? <laughs> i mean i didn't really know how to respond <laughs> is this a trick question <laughs> yeah right no Michelle. i i hate it teach me to love it i don't know just <laughs> <laughs> luckily they, they you know they gave me a shot and when i first got there you know there's all little things that have happened that are have helped along the way which i was i guess somewhat lucky about like when i first started there doug was on tour in Europe and they were getting a new console and Davis, the other owner, you know, like when I first got there, so I knew how to solder. <laughs> so I helped him rewire the control room for the new console. And then wow, it just so happened at the console that they were getting, like they had had one at the school I went to. So I knew how it worked. Perfect. You know, like when we first were doing first sessions, like I was able to help Davis like, oh, yeah, this button does that. Sounds like that got you the gig. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't know. And, you know, like when you're in a control room for 12 hours wiring something like you sort of can get to know somebody. So, you know, Davis and I hit it off. 
which obviously helped. And Doug was more skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> did he inspect every uh, solder that you did and went like, eh, it's a shit. Well, you know, right we there. had the console up. I was sort of crapping my pants because I was like, <laughs> you know, anything that was wrong, I was like, oh, this is going to be horrible. I'm just going to be told to get out of here. And luckily, it, most of it picked up right. So it was, it was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> you aced it. I, well, no, I wouldn't. I mean, I got through it. That's all you I mean, can do when you're young. <laughs> yeah. You got higher than a C. It's, that's, that's all you need. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That was probably uh, something that endeared you to Jack, I would imagine, because he's another guy who really likes to work with his hands and get in there and, you know, do technical stuff and all that. I mean, I would imagine that there was some some overlap there personality-wise between the two of you? Yeah, I mean, we got along. I thought, well, like, it's sort of weird talking about a record that was done so amazingly fast. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, it's 20 years ago, so that's a lot of beers ago. (laughs) But as far as Easley's, I don't know if I could have learned from two greater human beings. Like, I love them. Yeah. And they taught me a ton of stuff. And they were, I mean, that place was sort of a breeding ground for up and coming indie bands. And so, sure. I mean, they helped so many bands, like the same way they helped me, you know? So I am forever grateful to them. It was gaining like legendary status at a certain point because it was accumulating so many bands that were new but then released some of their best work out of easily mccain so very cool place to be at the epicenter of a lot of these musical journeys yeah i mean it was a fantastic time yeah just going through here i mean the gories had recorded there too and i know in the um the dvd of that white blood cells 20th anniversary box there's an image of meg pointing to the picture of the gories which is super fun we've had two of the three Gories on the program so far, and we're just a big, big fan of that group. This is the Gories from Detroit, hot off the press. It's going to jump on you, baby, and it's going to stay in your dress. Here it comes. I mean, just so many bands require. I mean, we're, we'll talk about Cat Power a bit a little later on down the line, but uh, Jeff Buckley, for God's sakes, amazing. I mean, some of the Modest Mouse, like, there's a lot of really quintessential albums recorded there. And you, it sounds like you were there for a lot of these. When did you start? Yeah, I mean, there was exactly. a ton of them beforehand that, yeah. you know, I missed out on, but, you know, John Spencer, Come, a lot of Matador bands, Spinanes, Pavement. Pavement, yeah. Silver Jews. Wilco? <laughs> Wilco's AM? That's a huge album. <laughs> What year did you start as an intern there? 
October of 95, I think. Oh, okay. Now, I've noticed another fun quote. I know I'm pulling out quotes left and right here. Um, <laughs> this is gotcha but, journalism. Yeah, this is got, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, but that uh, <laughs> you had a reputation and an ability to relax fidgety bands. Number one, that skill set is probably definitely being employed in this interview because Paul and I are noticeably <laughs> fidgety. <laughs> and number two, what sort of atmosphere did you kind of strive to have in a studio like Easley McCain? Or did it differ from artist to artist? It's always different for every band. I mean, the great thing about that studio, it was, although it was a large, it was a big room, it was amazingly comfortable. It was kind of like, you know, it was like everything was sort of thrift store couches and, but not, shitty couches but you know what i mean like and it was decorated really cool so it was sort of i thought a lot of the bands that we worked with that was like their you know one of their first or second records or something so they're not recording all the time so it's a big deal and you have to figure out and figure out really quickly how to get them comfortable so they can play their best so there's not one way to do it you just have to figure out quickly how to help them play their best that's your main job right is there any notable thing you can remember about pulling something together in a studio to ease the band into the studio environment? Like, did you do a John and Yoko and pull a bed in there at any point in time? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I have let people lay on the ground and with a handheld mic and sing, and then, you know, they need to sing in the bathroom or something. I've done that. It easily is they used to have echo chambers, and I let people play in the echo chamber, which was the challenge but it worked out <laughs> yeah it looks like it was very rock and roll kind of atmosphere when you're watching the footage of y'all recording white blood cells it has the vibe almost of like a, a club gig like even though it's a very professional looking studio i get what you mean about the sort of the diy sort of furniture because it feels very homey but it also feels very rock and roll like i could i could kind of smell the cigarettes you know, I could kind of smell the beer. Well, you know, like... a lot of people, like, that, it was a big enough room. And, like, with the white stripes, like, I think we might have changed at one point. Like, so they, it was all in the room. Like, the amps and the drums were all in the same room. And I remember we moved Jack a lot closer, like, his amp and everything, a lot closer to the drums just to try and make the room smaller. <laughs> right. As far as, so they could just feel more like they're in their rehearsal space. Sure which I think that helped. And we saw Meg uh, was on the floor in a sleeping bag at some point uh, while Jack was doing his uh, vocal takes, which is <laughs> which is pretty cool. That's a way to make somebody feel comfortable. <laughs> sure. I need to, I, I want to, I sort of, half of me really wants to watch that video and half of it, half of me does not. You come across looking quite cool. I have to say, it's not just because you're yeah, talking right. to us today. First, you, you did it. <laughs> no, but you look like, you look like you're sort of like, in charge right like you look like you're moving things around you're making shit happen you know what i mean it looks like you're you're the you're the boss not the boss but the boss you know what i mean yeah i have a i have a question for you actually about the tall room and this is maybe more of like a music theory question that i just don't understand but We've seen, like, I mean, James and I are big Beatle fans, so there's a difference between Studio 2 and Studio 3 at EMI in London because one has very, very high ceilings, one has very, very low ceilings. So, like, for instance, the Beatles used to record in 2, but when John and Yoko did Plastic Ono Band, they recorded in 3, which had the low ceilings and the brick. I'm wondering, what can you tell us about the kind of sound you get from a room 
that is shaped like the one at Easley McCain. Like I noticed the the different plating on the wall. Is that just about letting the sound waves rise or something? I don't have the vocabulary, but I'm wondering well, if you tell. Okay, so like I guess maybe the easiest way you can think of it is like so you move into a new house and you walk into your tiny bedroom and you clap. Yeah, it sounds like shit's zinging all over the place and it does right. not. It's not a pleasing sound. And then go <laughs> to a church you know a big cathedral yeah and do the same thing and listen to how disperse and nice it's it sounds. probably deepens the the sound a little bit too a little bit uh i mean a larger room is the sound has more time to, to disperse and you're not dealing with as many like early reflections which causes phase and you know there's a lot smarter people with acoustics <laughs> than me but I mean, on this call, you are a PhD compared to Paul, so there's that. All right. Well, that's an an elementary school description for you. This is the land of the blind, and you are king. (laughs) Um, Well, I guess it's going to be interesting for me. It's also like, listen to, uh, you know, John Bonham's drums versus, you know, like the John Lennon's like the small slapback drum. television record like how tight the, those rec- drums were recorded in a tiny booth you know it was super dead yeah so you know i see different rooms do different things well i guess that that would be helpful to make a two-piece sound like more than a two-piece we talked to um jim diamond a bit about his production on the first white stripes album And Ghetto Recorders, while we don't have any footage of that, is not quite the grandiose space that Easley McCain is. And then we know with Distill, I think that was like a, I think that was a Jack Home recording, Mm -hmm. or it might have also been done at Ghetto Recorders. Not big spaces. So it'll be interesting, because Jim put a lot of reverb on stuff to make it sound bigger, but I suppose you don't really have to do that in a, or maybe it's a little easier to make a two-piece sound bigger, literally in a bigger space. Well, I do know, like, I mean, there's no reverb on that. Yeah. At least on the drums. I'm sure I used it on other things, but drums for sure didn't have any. I mean, that's just the sound. And actually, you know, I guess there's sort of two things on that record that I do remember. One of them being some of those final versions of that song are rough mixes. Oh, wow. So it's probably like... Everyone reports like, oh, it's the first time they recorded a 24-track studio. But, you know, they were on sympathy, so the budget was (laughs) tiny. And to save money on tape, I split the tape in half. 
basically. <clears throat> so I recorded songs on tracks one through 12 until we ran out of tape. Then I backed the tape up to the beginning and then we jumped over to tracks 13 through 24. Huh. So like if you were to pull up the tape now and heard all 24 tracks, you would listen to two different songs at the same time. Wow. Huh. Wild. That's Which is not the optimal way to do it, but <laughs> it was like, okay, we got to save some money. This is how we're going to do it. How many tracks do you need for a two-piece? I mean, yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it seems like what it was the twelve might have been too many. I don't know. <laughs> well, and from what I've heard, uh, reading about the recording of it, he told you to make it sound or not make it sound too good either. Which well, kind of that might have been taken. I I know I did say that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> we could take it back. We could look. We could clear the air. Sec- set the record straight. I think what he meant was like. As for going into a bigger studio and a professional studio, like the, I think what he was really saying was like, don't make it sound like a Motley Crue record or something. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. Like it's I, not. There was with, there wasn't any intention to be like, oh well, hold on, let me detune the snare a little bit so it sounds shittier, or you know, I mean, it wasn't. <laughs> there was nothing like that. Yeah, but what you're saying completely falls in line with what we know about the band and the band's not aesthetic, but like they didn't want it to sound like an overproduced pop record. They wanted it to sound a little grittier to match kind of the tone of the, the music. The live set, basically. Yeah. And yeah, yeah they won't. Well, yeah, you gotta, you have to somehow produce their electric, the two of them, the feeling of those two playing together on a record. If you were to slick it up, you would not be doing this podcast right now. <laughs> I think they even is it on white blood cells one of the b-sides is like a the pop version of one of the songs paul am i remembering that's from uh distill distill okay but like he knows what he wants in terms of sound from like paul said to match the live set feeling because like he wants you to hear the the warts of the music he wants you to kind of see it's all about the energy between the two people and how that how you project that right you gotta fight it a little bit you can't have uh just can't over slick it too much yeah well, yeah well i also think it plays into like meg didn't think they were ready and i i'm positive jack did that on purpose <laughs> i'm sure he did that sounds right up right <laughs> like something he'd do So how familiar were you with the Stripes prior to them recording there? They were not a particularly well-known group at that point. As you mentioned, they had put out two records on Sympathy, but they weren't exactly a uh, a worldwide phenomenon. They were more of like a kind of a 
I guess, a tastemaker sort of group amongst a, a select few people who were maybe in the know at that time. So did, did you have any familiarity? Did you listen to the first two records before you started in on making this one? Well, so when we booked it, I didn't know who they were, but I had friends that were pretty psyched that they were coming. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, I did listen to their records before they came. And there had been a ton of sympathy bands that had come through. So because of that, plus like the Oblivions and Rocket from the Crypt yeah. both recommended to them that they come and record. heard that rocket from the crypt had gone and i had recalled them from the long gone john catalog of music um, yeah I, i'm assuming long guns checks were still clearing at that point <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> or was he paying you and like dude do you know that dude has one of the manson family's freaking jackets we just learned that from april march the other day we we're like holy shit no, i've heard his house is crazy <laughs> <laughs> Do you recall meeting the band? Uh, do you have uh, any first impressions of, of meeting Jack or Meg that you care to share? Uh, I mean, I remember them being excited. I mean, there's not a story that jumps out. And again, I mean, it was, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe I should watch the video. Maybe let's redo the, let's redo this <laughs> conversation after I watch the video. We'll just do a live, we'll, we'll do a live watch. All three of yeah. us will. <laughs> We'll watch the thing. We'll react to it. You'll watch me squirming out of my chair. <laughs> well, you know, Jack was no stranger to the studio at that time. And he is a very hands-on type of dude. But, you know, we were talking to Joe Ciccarelli a bit about their recording process on Icky Thump and some of the Rack and Tours records. And, you know, Joe had commented that Jack was very sponge-like in his quest to kind of be hands-on, but also learn, you know, a bit more about the process. What was the dynamic like between the two of you? Did you find that he was maybe picking stuff up from you or vice versa? Or, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the dynamic there? Well, I remember, him. you know, he was one, I mean, he was great at, he knew what kind of sounds he wanted and how to get a really good guitar sound. So there was that. As far as, I mean, yeah, he was inquisitive about what I was doing. Just mostly, I think, you know, he did, yeah, want to learn, but he also wanted to make sure it was sounding how he wanted to, to sound. Right. The, the hands-on thing, like as far as the recording part, I don't, I mean, he was kind of, I guess maybe a little more than other people, but I mean, honestly, I totally don't remember. I mean, as far as like mixing, you know, we I would mix them and it would be like, okay, what do you think? <laughs> and then you know I'd be like oh can you yeah sounds cool can you turn this part up or this you know it wasn't like i think it was a lot more hands-on when we mixed the loretta lynn record gotcha did he insist on listening to both songs at the same time on that on that tape <laughs> <laughs> the test <laughs> He could hear the difference. Were there any standout tracks or moments from the sessions that you can remember? Did Meg get into the echo chamber and, and saying, what, what, what's going on? What, what happened? I mean, I remember <laughs> everyone being super, even like, 
I remember Jack Yarber from Oblivion's came over to the studio and me and Mo, we were all pretty psyched on we can be friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walking blues, climb the fence, books and pens. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. little restaurant that was in an old gas station in memphis and she worked with greg cartwright who's in the oblivions and scott taylor who was in this band the grifters and a bunch of other people in bands and i know you asked like did i know that it was going to be a big hit i was like well no i didn't (laughs) so uh, this guy scotty diablo had gotten a copy of the record before it came out so he took it up to the restaurant to play it for everybody and they all started freaking out they're like holy shit this is awesome and i just remember my wife coming home and go you know that record you made with those that band a couple months ago (laughs) people are freaking out about it and i was like no shit (laughs) so when recording we're going to be friends you had said that you know it was cool to to record that song in particular i'm wondering how that song was recorded because it sounds very intimate it feels very close i don't know there's something about it that the guitar pops in a certain way that feels kind of nice and warm did you have him play that in a in a smaller space what was recording that song like i remember he used a an acoustic that was at the studio i don't remember what kind of guitar it was but it was it wasn't a particularly like fantastic acoustic guitar this tracks yeah (laughs) i don't i probably I used like a dynamic mic on it, which a lot of people use condenser mics or ribbon mics on that. What else? I know Meg was sort of keeping time. Yeah. Just tapping her foot. I think we mic'd that. Well, there's also on in the DVD, you can see there's a, there's a version with drums, which shocked the hell out of me. I've never heard that before. Um, I don't, I don't remember that. Yeah. She, there's a version where she's sort of playing drums with it and it just does not work <laughs> i mean not yeah. because she's doing it poorly but because the song doesn't warrant it you know well, there's a song i got here it's like it's kind of quiet it's kind of like almost a kid's song and we're trying to figure out some kind of real quiet percussion like, like the brushes are those brushes in that bag yeah but, uh, i don't know if there's any way we can do it where uh
You mentioned that you had you didn't have any inkling, of course, that the, the stripes are going to blow up. This is on the precipice, though, of a big life change for them. You know, you we talk about Easley McCain and the homey atmosphere. And again, I'm going to refer to the video a lot. But when you see the video, they're not acting like famous people. <laughs> not to say that when they got famous, they acted like famous people. But they're just sort of in band mode at that point, sort of club band mode. And... I wanted to, you know, if you can they remember. Stayed, they didn't, you know, they stayed at Jack Darber's house. They didn't get yeah. a hotel. I mean, they, I do remember, I can't, if it was like the first or the second day, Jack's like, hey, check this out. And he shows me Rolling Stone magazine. He's like, we made it in Rolling Stone. It's one of the 10 bands to watch. I was like, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> that's awesome. Wild. Oh, that's funny. That's great. Well, that kind of answers my question. I was wondering, did you get a sense from them that they knew something big was coming or was this just business as usual for that? Cause yeah, you no, figure I think Jack did. Yeah. I mean, I, not at the time I had no idea, but like, you know, I think he could have put that record out, you know, for as amazing of a musician as he is, he's just as good at business. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. I mean, this was after the fact, I didn't know this at the time, but you know, there were several major labels that would have put that record out. Like, they wanted to sign them before that record got put out. Right. And it was probably one of the smartest things anyone could have done. He's like, no, I'm just going to put it out on sympathy. And then once it blew up, it was like, all right, who's going to, I mean, I don't know what he was thinking, but I'm sure I would have been thinking, all right, who's going to pay me the most money and give me the best deal? (laughs) Right, right. Keeping all his, you know, he's smart with how he keeps control of his stuff. And it's sad when musicians don't, do that you know i see it happens all the time people just get screwed out of what they made yeah it's got to be tough to make those kinds of decisions especially if you don't know if you're going to make it big you'll grab anything you can get at a certain point in your creative endeavors because sometimes you just don't know and you'll you'll take a chance and that chance can lead to big success but it could also lead to not making the the profits or getting the compensation you kind of deserve well, it's sure. A, I mean, there's stories of, I mean, there's countless yeah. people who are amazingly talented that none of us have heard, and sadly so. But show business. Yay. What <laughs> <laughs> a business. Yeah, it's, like, it's a game of confidence at a certain point, and Jack has is, is got no shortage of that. It's also like where, where you're comfortable at the time, you know, like Sean of Cat Power kind of did the same thing. Like they were, like, major labels were throwing money at her and she said you know no i'm staying i'm gonna i'm staying on matador right he's like but the, your terms don't jive with me so i'm I, you know screw you right matador's a good label that's yeah do you recall any favorite haunts of the uh, of the band outside of the studio where they might convene after a session did you join them for any drinks down at, at the bar in, in memphis no I, I don't know <laughs> i don't know i don't know what they did <laughs> That's a shame. I hear Meg could uh, drink anybody under the table. Uh, she Well, Meg was... did drink some whiskey during that <laughs> session. That was one of the ways that she sort of, you know, calmed down Calmed-ed. a little bit. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> I do remember. So they came back. They played in Memphis September 10th. And they played at this small place called Ernestine and Hazel's. 
it says them and the greenhorns mm-hmm. and you know it was like that hadn't totally blown up yet but it was still they were getting popular but so yeah it was a great it was super fun show and like you know afterwards a lot of people went back to this bar called the lamplighter in memphis which probably my all-time favorite bar in the world so everyone got too drunk <laughs> and then i just remember waking up the next day so it's september 10th 2001 yeah i was gonna say i hope they didn't have a gig the next day so i remember waking up and like my friends calling me like the world is changing the world is changing turn your tv on it's like oh my god okay what and then yeah the world changed wait so the the white stripes were in memphis when that happened yeah they played september 10th Jesus. so if I'm reading this correctly, Meg and Jack Lawrence were probably still drinking when this news was breaking. <laughs> Those two had it out. That is wild. I had no idea that that, yeah, w- like what was happening around then. But wow. Not to move this interview into where were you during 9-11 territory. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start talking about conspiracy theories. Yeah. Uh, have you heard? I have, I have a bit of loose change in my pocket. Yeah. Does anybody need any loose? Oh, oof, oof. Bazinga. Bazinga. Um... So uh, let's let's <laughs> let's shift gears, shall we? Let's shift gears to uh, to Van Lee Rose. Stop now! I can just stand it now. I was like, that's that's a Captain Buzzkill. This no. is the this is the relaxing atmosphere you are providing for us, Stuart. We we love it. Now, uh, we'll 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 go into Van Lee Rose a little bit here. Van Lee Rose, you were called by Loretta's management to solicit some of your help on mixing it and engineering. You care to talk a little bit about how that came together, what that phone call was like? Sure. I do remember. So after what, I guess in October of 2001, my wife and I, we moved to Dallas. And I remember at that point. It was all because of that night at the lamplighter, wasn't it? (laughs) It was. It was all. (laughs) Skip town. That's a whole other boring story. But uh, so they were playing maybe this was in the spring or something like that the 2002 i guess and they were playing a you know pretty big venue and so they, they put us on the guest list and so it was in like a suburb the venue was in a suburb so we were broke as we were broke and so we had like 20 bucks to go to this show i was like okay we'll be able to buy a couple beers while they're playing you know whatever then we get there and Parking was like 10 bucks. So we had 10 bucks. So we got to buy one beer for the whole show. Oh, no. And like it was, you know, it was fun. It was good. So then we go back and talk to them after the show. So they're they're stocked with beer. And my wife and I are just guzzling all their beer. (laughs) But I just remember. So Jack told me about like they had started doing that record. And he was super psyched on it. I also remember he was like telling me, he's like, oh, a lot of things changed since last time I saw you. And I was thinking of myself, I was like, yeah, not me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm stealing your beer because I don't have any money. But <laughs> So I knew that they were doing it. And Loretta's manager called me and I was like, I'm freaking out. She's like, now we really want you to mix this, but we don't have a whole lot of money in the budget to mix it, which me at this point, I don't know what that means. Like <laughs> right. I'm thinking, okay, you're, you don't, you have no money. Like 
they're saying they don't have any like major, major label money to mm-hmm. mix it. So I mixed it for like a bag of peanuts, but it was awesome. It was, I was so psyched yeah. to be able to do it. I mean, when you offer to be paid in beer fridge money, I mean, I, I get it. Uh, but because I, I, mean, I, I know that they they asked Liam, the tow rag dude, I think they asked him to if he wanted to mix it as well. And I don't know what happened there, but I'm glad he didn't do it. Glad I it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that's probably like. It must have been bizarre to see Jack again. Because, yeah, like, yes, he said a lot of things changed. That's, let's see, it's like, what, four years difference? And in that four years, like, he's dating Renee Zellweger and all this. He's in movies and shit. I mean, that must have been so surreal for you to see that. I mean, had you followed his career trajectory at all in the interim between? Yeah, I mean, I was super psyched. You know, it was, to me, it was like a, victory for all these great bands that kind of get to a point and don't make it any further. Yeah. And like for them to be able to do what they did, like I, you know, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. You're no stranger to working with a lot of different people in the studio, but Loretta Lynn must've been something else sort of, I mean, obviously we're all sort of the universe is Loretta Lynn fans, but was it daunting to lay a hand on a, a legacy like that? I mean, I was pretty nervous to meet her. Yeah. You know, as far as mixing it, I mean, I was just psyched. I was excited. You know, like yeah. I, I didn't, that part didn't freak me out so much as, as meeting her. Right. Eleven months old, I was just starting to walk, and Daddy always kept a big stick behind the door just in case somebody was to come in that was drunk on moonshine. You know, and Daddy had to do something about it. And uh, this woman, they called her Old Aunt Boyd. She come in and she was telling Mommy about her uh, husband. She thinks is going out with this woman in Paintsville. So she rode back with that big stick, showing Mommy how she was going to hit this woman in the head with it. Yeah, you know, she'd come into the studio sort of periodically. And, you know, she'd listen and she'd be like, I remember it's like, she'd be listening to a song. It's like, now, boys, it, is my voice in tune there? And we were both like, my God, yes! Amazing! <laughs> and then she'd like tell us a story about Butcher Holler. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back to the bus. She's like, okay, good to see you. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. Worth the peanuts. Yeah. yeah. 
And on top of all that, you basically helped oversee, you know, the creation of the Rack and Tours there with having the rhythm section with Jack Lawrence and Patrick Keeler and, and Brendan Benson even stepping in for a bit there. But how much input did Jack and Loretta have over the nitty gritty? Or was it just simply them walking into the studio and going, do I sound out of tune? <laughs> well, that so the recording, like I did, all I did was mix it. Yeah. OK. Yeah. This guy, Eric, recorded it and he's a fantastic engineer and his studio. So hit the cover of that record is Loretta in front of his studio. Oh. Like it was an old house. Yeah. And so a lot of it was like, they got together. This is what Eric told me. I mean, they got together to sort of see if it would work and they did it at Eric's place. And so they recorded it, you know, recorded the, practices or just the rehearsals and those that's what became the record right and so it was done like eric had a one inch eight track and like it was a i think it was a pretty like it came together quick i I just remember like he hadn't aligned his tape machine when they started it so they started recording it and they decided it was going to be the record so like forever however long it took him to do it like he he couldn't adjust his tape machine because it would have screwed up the that recording. Right. So then when we mixed it, like he had to bring his tape machine from Nashville to, to Memphis to do it. <laughs> so, you know, we know Brendan produced one of those tracks. Was he present at all for the mixing or was Brendan already back in Detroit getting mugged or whatever? Uh, he, no, I think, no, he wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, and on top of it all, you won a Grammy for this album, which, holy shit. Uh, yeah. That's a pretty nice affirmation for all that hard work. We need a little um, round of applause here. Yes, yes, yes. At the very least, you were paid in a Grammy, uh, so that's pretty <laughs> cool. Were you actually at the, the awards for that, or did they did they just present it? No, I was not. I, was, I remember I was on a plane when the awards happened. Gotcha. So when I got off, my mom had left me a voicemail saying, oh, congratulations. <laughs> and at that time, I didn't think I was going to get one, like an actual thing. And like two years after the fact, <laughs> I got a call like one afternoon. And it was like a Los Angeles number. And I answered it. And it was some guy from the Academy or whatever it is. He was like... I said, Stuart? I was like, yeah. He's like, you're a hard man to find. <laughs> it took me two years. So did, you, did you look like at the time, you know, phone books were still around. I was like, it's not. No, it's not hard to find. But he's like, we've been trying to get you this Grammy for two years. <laughs> oh, cool. Okay. And so then they, you know, you got to sign all these forms before they actually send it to you and you have to promise not to throw it in the trash. <laughs> no, you have to say you have to you have to sign a paper that says you will not sell it. Wow. Then where have all of my Grammys come from? <laughs> I bought them all off eBay. <laughs> that is really cool though. And does your mom refer to you now as her Grammy award-winning son? No, she sort of refers to me as the guy who just redid her kitchen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Wow. Grammy Award winning guy who read it. I'd be pulling that out everywhere. I'd be yeah. pulling that out at the drive through. I'd be at the line at the Home Depot. I'd be just 
I'd be getting anything I could for that. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. It pulled out that old photograph like a treasured memory from the past and say, child, this year's the family rose. Before we wrap up here, I did want to ask, you know, in addition to your your engineering work, you've also produced a ton of albums uh, for the aforementioned uh, Cat Power up until your most recent work with Easy Prey. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your production style and maybe how it's evolved over the years. And were there any sort of aha moments which helped you along the path of developing your producer's chair? You know, I I I think, you know, you always are trying to learn and do things differently. And so through the years I've tried to, it's always 100% about the band and trying to make the band sound like the best way to them. It's not like stamping my, whatever I do, because I could, I'll mix one song for a band. And then the next band that comes in, I'm going to mix it completely different. I'm going to use totally different things. Bands just need, like a coach to be like, yeah, it was a great take. And, or some bands need to say, you know, that bridge has got to go. We got to work that out. Right. You know, it's all sort of, it's different. Every, every record and pushing bands to be better than they thought they could be. Yeah. That seems about right for the job. That's like kind of the best advice we've heard from other engineers as well is just, you know, it's not about me. It's about the band. Or, you know, it seems to be uh, something Joe Ciccarelli has also yeah. uh, said to us as well. So it, that makes that makes sense. And is there anything uh, anything new coming down the road for you? Are you putting anything out uh, soon that you'd like to plug? Or oh, you could listen. Me and my friend Ian McDougal from Riverboat Gamblers and Band of Horses put out a seven inch last nice. couple months ago. Hell yeah! Let's play a little bit of that here. It's called Nice Surprise. that out and that's awesome yeah it was fun that was what we were you know covid boredom pre uh created that one <laughs> well let it never be said covid never gave us anything <laughs> well you haven't heard it you haven't heard it yet <laughs> well it's bound to be better than the awful disease i got <laughs> earlier this year so might be true yeah well thank you Stuart, so much for taking the time today we are just we're thrilled to talk with you, and you had so many amazing stories. We really appreciate it. And yeah, uh, good luck editing this. Uh, no, it's gonna be. <laughs> it's gonna be. Well, fun. we were gonna send it to you to mix it, and yeah. if you could just put all of our uh, voices on on one track, so that and one side of the tape, yeah. and then also don't make it sound too good. 
And also, I have a kitchen I'd like to redo, from specifically <laughs> a Grammy Award winning. I'm good at that. <laughs> thank you so much, Stuart. This is a blast. Yeah, thank you. James, we'd like to thank Stuart Sykes for joining us on the program today. Thank you, Stuart. Super fascinating discussion, and you were super nice to have talked with us. And Grammy award-winning engineer Stuart Sykes. We've had a lot of Grammy people on here. We've had a lot of grandmothers and Grammy award winners. NBG. Nothing (laughs) but grandmothers. I've won a lot of Grammys, a lot of Grampies. We'd like to thank our Patreon patrons, people keeping the lights on for us. We have Stephen Reese, the Stephen Nation Army, or Old Mary full of Reese. Both are very funny to me. Ashley Forbes steady, Ashley goes. Shane Ben Jamson, the Shane boy you've always known, Melinda Endress. You look pretty in your fancy Endress. Elizabeth Myers, one eye, one blank stare, looking at Myers there. Brett Garski, the Brett three killed Mike Garski, Yvette Wilkins, Wilkins on Sunshine, Brenda Englehart, we want to be the boys. Tormier Englehart, Kate McCoy, the bones of the operation. Stu Cat, Stu Driver, Julian Tobias, the $3 hat Megs, Melinda Tay, Lord, send me an angel down. Josh Shaken or Joe Shaken all over. Luke Sinclair, look me over closely. Tam Davis, our third person in spirit every week. Derek Forever, Ferguson, and Michael Brookfield, the bone Brookfield. Thank you to our Patreon patrons. We really appreciate it. Yes, and you all are the best. Wow. Paul? Wow. Wow. Ka-chow. Ka-chow. Uh, are, we, are, we, are we doing the rest of this? Or James wants to hold to. on to the link list. We don't have to hold James on to the link list. James wants it so bad. No, but you all should, um, should uh, you know, consider giving us a rating. Throw a, throw a star our way. Throw a throwing star. <laughs> throw a throwing way. star at us. Um. Yeah, everybody rate, review, and subscribe. You can go to rateus.thirdbendpodcast.com to do that. And and uh, the rest of it will be in the, in the end. Wow. At the end wow. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to make a we're going to make a leap and we're going to not do the rest of the link list. We're going to leave that to Suzette. Every season we do something a little bit differently and you always look a little sad about it <laughs> this this season we're leaving the poo poo pee pee talk in <laughs> and we're getting rid of the stuff the marketing yeah we're losing the the marketing <laughs> <laughs> but we're keep we're keeping the quiet place jokes 100 percent more quiet place jokes 100 percent more jim halpert and uh 100 less marketing strategy and optimization how about this james has done some new merch i did that he put up on our merch page bit.ly slash third men merch well i hear that they are based on some of the new animations you did for our third men podcast open show which was a screaming success that's a good idea (laughs) thank you (laughs) marketing (laughs) 100% more SEO, 100% less enjoyment. I tell you what, the other thing you can do is, hey, 
tell a friend about the show and an easy way to do that is just we're gonna do a let's what what should we call it a tag drive we're gonna do a tag drive go to our instagram at the third men underscore podcast and tag a fellow jack white fan who you think is maybe not listening to the third men podcast tag him on any one of our posts we're gonna do a tag drive or tag jam tag team tag team toe tag studio toe tag studio time Ta- square slime slime Ta- square tag gum it's a tag sale I'm watching oh a lot my of cars. god we're having a, <laughs> we're tag, having a tag sale tag a friend who you <laughs> tag along tag along with a friend oh my god we're having a fire sale oh the burning Until next episode, James, I will be looking for a home being very, very, very quiet so as not to wake your son. And I will be looking for a home in a sleeping bag in the floor of Easley McCain. The Third Man Podcast was created, edited, and produced by Paul and James Kaminsky. Our theme song, We're the Third Men, was recorded by the band Radkey, who can be found at radkey.net. To contact the show, visit thirdmenpodcast.com or email thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at the third men underscore podcast on Instagram at third men cast on Twitter and search the third men on Facebook. Thanks to our Patreon patrons to everyone who has rated reviewed and subscribed and see you next time. Hey everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like, chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on. It can be as much or as little as you can swing, and all donations are greatly appreciated. The last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash, so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough. But if you would like to help us out, that would be amazing. All right, that's all from me. Remember, you can head to patreon.com slash thirdmenpodcast, and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already. All right, everybody, I'll see you on the show. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. 
This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production, and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. I would love to hear more about this great day of the season. (laughs) Did I mention we're trying to make it worse? Um... So different, you and I. <laughs> Stuart Sykes knocked me down. Sykes messages. <laughs> That's what I was looking for. We got there. And that's this is all true. Are these the science aliens? They, it's they're science aliens esque. They they are not poisoned by water, but they can't swim. I guess so. <laughs> you see one. So with they like get a floaties on. So, like, <laughs> so they get to the island. So they get to the island, and people are having cookouts. And the man who played the scarecrow in the Batman Begins is like, ah, word, I'll have a hamburger, and. They they sit around the fire and they're jabber jawing about all kinds of such, and then he's on a walk. He he takes a little walk in the morning after. To the island, which does beg the question: like, did the can the aliens a pilot a boat? And if they and if so. Are they are they on the seven seas heading to other islands? <laughs> um, somehow, <laughs> Alexa. Are you, are you talking about the Olympics? Is that stop? What's going on over there? Um, it heard me talk, and it thought I was talking about the Tokyo Olympics. So I'm gonna unplug this. <laughs> James's robot has gone rogue. No, she can say link list. I don't care about the link list. You, you're saying that as though I kicked the link list in the nuts. <laughs> I'm, just I'm just saying. Piss at us again if we get it wrong. Hold on. <laughs> Six. Just still. Oh, come on. I know I grabbed it.